Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio. Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, we work too hard, feel overwhelmed, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world, we meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And if you haven't tried the app yet, you can now try it for free and explore a starter series plus a sample of some of our favorite guided meditations in the Discover collection. You may also want to check out our new meditation collection focused on mindful eating and our collection and course all about mindfulness at work. And if you've already got the app, check out our new unguided meditation timer where you can create your own meditations with or without our brand new pretty amazing music tracks. And don't forget the eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. Today's guest is Vidyamala Birch. Vidyamala knows firsthand the agony of living with pain. She's been living with chronic pain since she was 17 years old. She's found a way to not only manage this pain, but to live a full, happy, and meaningful life despite it. Her life's work has been to help people in similar situations, and she does this by sharing her deep wisdom and tools through books and programs, all born out of her very personal journey and discoveries along the way. She offers wise guidance and practical guidance on how to bring mindfulness and kindness to all of our experiences, including the difficulties that come with pain and illness, so that we can be our best selves regardless of the circumstances which isn't always easy to do. And she teaches that even when the body is broken, the mind doesn't have to be. I love when she talks about how our catastrophic or worst case scenario thinking only makes us suffer more. She's helped thousands of people transform their experience of pain through her breathworks and You Are Not Your Pain programs. She's an amazing woman who's had a huge impact in her lifetime. Now, here's Vijamala. Vijamala, thank you so much for being on Untangled today. We're so happy to have you. It's my absolute pleasure to be here with you. Thank you very much for asking me. Yeah, your story is so compelling. And you injured your spine in, I guess it was 1977 when you were 17 years old. And then you had a subsequent accident. Can you share a little bit about your personal journey and how you discovered that meditation would help you with your pain? So, yes, so I was brought up in New Zealand and I was a fairly typical kind of New Zealand kid, very outdoorsy. I was very sporty, athletic, very fit, very strong, took my body for granted, never really even thought about my health or fitness. It was my body just was a high functioning body. Let's put it that way. Then when I was 16, I was doing life-saving practice and lifting someone out of a swimming pool and my back started to hurt. And it turned out that I'd fractured one of my vertebrae. I had a condition called spondylolisthesis, which is a weakness in the spinal column. So I had this fracture and my spinal column had shunted forwards at that level. The following year, when I was 17, I had a fusion surgery at the beginning of the year. And then there were complications. So I had another major operation six months later. So I went from being this very sporty, very fit girl 
to being a girl with chronic pain and with a damaged spine, a really severely damaged spine. To make matters worse, when I was 23, I was a passenger in a car and the guy who was driving went to sleep at the wheel and drove into a telegraph pole. Mm. So I stirred up all my old injury and I also fractured a vertebra in the middle of my spine. So here I was, I was 23 and I had a really messed up back by this point. I wasn't coping with it at all well. I lived in outright denial in those days. I think it was too catastrophic for me to even begin to accept it. So I just pretended it wasn't happening. I really pushed myself. I could walk in those days. These days I use a wheelchair and crutches, but at that point I was still able to walk. So I worked really, really hard. I still tried to go cycling. I still tried to do everything I did before. And I pushed myself very, very hard, which I think is not that uncommon when these sorts of things happen. We just try to pretend that we're even stronger than we were before. But of course, that is a recipe for disaster. So when I was 25, which was a couple of years later, I had quite a major collapse. I went to see a surgeon who suggested I went home and had two weeks of complete bed rest and then came back if there was no improvement, he'd do more invasive tests. So I went home and went to bed and it was as if someone had just pulled out the plug, turned off the power. Mm. And I really completely collapsed. I was completely exhausted. When I stopped pushing... It was a bit like I crash landed in my reality, which was not pretty at all. I didn't go back to the surgeon. I just ended up in bed for months. And then some months later, I had some cortisone injections in my spine, which is a fairly standard treatment. There's nothing particularly alarming about that. But because of all my previous injuries and previous surgery, the cortisone injections led to my bladder being paralyzed, Mm. which was, again, very, very shocking. I was only 25 years old. So I ended up in hospital in an intensive care ward and really having a dark night of the soul. It was clear that everything was crashing down around me and that I was extremely unwell. Again, there wasn't going to be a medical solution that was going to make everything go away. It was becoming apparent I was going to need to learn how to live with it. And one night in the intensive care ward, I had a very strong experience. I'll just explain it very briefly. I'd had a particular test that day, which meant I needed to sit up for 24 hours afterwards. And I hadn't sat up for months. So I was very, very weak, very frail, trying to sit up in this hospital bed. Absolute agony. And my whole story in my mind became, how could I get through till the morning when I could lie down again? So I had this voice in my head saying, I can't get through till the morning, I'm going to go crazy. And another voice saying, but you have to but I can't, but you have to. I can't do it. I'm going to go crazy. No, you have to. So I had these two voices getting louder and louder and louder in my head. It really felt like my head was being crushed by a vice Mm. of intensity. And then unbidden, who knows from where, a third voice came in. And the third voice had the message, you don't have to get through till the morning. You just have to live this moment and this one and this one and this one. And my experience completely changed. And rather than being obsessed about the future, about the morning, I just knew in the very depth of my being that I just needed to live each moment and that I could do that in a much more relaxed and easeful way. Now, of course, I wasn't relaxed in the full sense by any stretch of the imagination. I was still a tortured 25-year-old woman with no mental resources. But nonetheless, well, it was a completely life-changing experience. I did get through till the morning and I knew that I was profoundly changed. I knew that my whole life had changed 
because of that voice in the middle of the night. Big questions arose for me, like what is time? What is space? Who am I? What is consciousness? What was this voice? Yeah, this is quite interesting, sitting here now 40 years later. I think I knew that the rest of my life was going to be dedicated to making sense of that moment. Mm. And then a few days later, the hospital chaplain came to see me, very lovely man, and he did a meditation with me. So he got me to turn my mind to a time and a place where I'd been happy. So I took my mind to the Southern Alps of New Zealand, where I'd done a lot of climbing before my injuries, and been ecstatically happy. I mean, it is really probably one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I've been very, very happy. So I took my mind there. And then he finished after maybe 10 minutes. And I felt different. Same girl, same hospital bed. 10 minutes had passed. And my subjective experience felt very, very different because of what I'd done with my mind. And that also had a really huge effect on me. So it was a bit like the first experience was all about how do I really wake up to life in this moment and live life in this moment and let go of being tortured by the past and the future. And then the second experience was my mind as a tool. So the first experience was also about consciousness in a way, about that I had this capacity to be present. And then the second experience was that I could train my awareness. I could train my mind. And I had this phrase in my mind after that, which was my body might be broken, but my mind can be whole. My body might be broken, but my mind can be whole can be. I knew it wasn't whole at that point. But that experience with the chaplain had a really big effect. So really, I've been exploring the mind ever since. I came out of hospital after a few weeks. I didn't go back to my crazy job. That was very, very bad for my body. I had a fantastic social worker and I said to her, I really, really want to learn to meditate. I want to learn to train my mind. So she got me lots of books, lots of audio cassettes, which is what we used in those days. I didn't know anybody that meditated. (laughs) And yet I just had this visceral knowing that this was going to be my journey and that this could be my gateway to freedom living in this body. That is such an incredible story. I'm sort of a little bit breathless listening to it and just sort of feeling what it must have been like for you as such a young woman, emotionally handling this sort of series of experiences that you were going through. I'm just wondering, I mean, Between your ages of 17 and 25, when all of this was really just tumbling down, were there people that were supporting you in and around you, or did you feel very sort of isolated and on your own? Because it sounds like you had such a discovery, and most of the discovery was through your own personal internal journey until the chaplain came and did the visualization with you. But it did sound like you were quite on your own. Yeah, I was very strongly on my own. However, that was mainly of my own creation. Mm. I have a loving family. I have a twin sister. My mother was very, very concerned about me. But because of my denial, I was pushing everybody away. Because if I let them in, I would have to acknowledge what was going on. So my habit was, I'm fine, leave me alone. That was my kind of message, which is a very strong New Zealand habit. New Zealand women are pretty tough. Mm. So they, I'm fine, leave me alone. That's the kind of narrative that many of us have. I mean, it's a strong pioneering country. Right. And it was awful for my mother. I know that. It was very painful for her because I pushed her away and shut her out. I wouldn't let people help me. So it was a very, very lonely time, I must say. Yeah. Well, I mean, that phrase, I'm fine, leave me alone, is 
similar to what you did with your pain too, when you talk about pushing it away and resisting. I could sort of see <laughs> this young woman like almost trying to will everything to be okay, but at the same time pushing away everyone who loves you and pushing away the pain and pushing it all away. And then what was it, do you think, in that moment when you were 25, when you're sitting in your bed and you had this wake-up call? I know you said it came almost in three parts, but it's like people talk about the dark night of the soul or just you got to that point where you were willing to change, I guess. I think so. Yes. I mean, uh, what you've described is exactly the situation. I've got a very, very strong will, very strong willpower. And during those years, it was a little bit as if I invented a kind of parallel reality to live in where I was fine. Mm. And I was trying to will that into being all the time. I mean, it's not terribly sane when I talk about it. (laughs) But it was a coping strategy. It was the only coping strategy that I knew. And I think, to be honest, what happened that night was I was so broken, so defeated. My will had finally run out. Mm. And that created a kind of space for a deeper wisdom to arise. Mm. And partly why I do the work that I do is I just hope that through the work that I do, other people in similar situations don't have to go so far down a tunnel of willful denial and loneliness and isolation before that message can get through. So my life's work is to give this message of waking up to the moment and letting go of the struggle so people can hear it much, much sooner. And do you find that that is possible? For other people? Yeah, that we can come to these realizations or these teachings without being so deeply broken. What are some of the tools that you use to help people get to that place sooner? It's definitely possible. I mean, all the time I'm seeing people who are, the light bulb goes off and they realize there is an easier way. So I'm absolutely convinced of that. I know that it works. And the tools that I offer people, they're very, very simple. And they have to be simple because when you're really struggling with a major health problem, which many people that I teach are, you don't want something that's complex. You don't want something that's conceptually abstract. So it's very, very simple. And the primary message that I teach people is to open to the discomfort or the pain and to divide it into two elements that we call primary and secondary suffering. So the primary suffering is the unpleasant sensations in the body. So in that night, I had unpleasant sensations in my back. The secondary suffering is caused by resistance, by the unwillingness to be open to those basic sensations. So you resist it, you push it away, you fight it, you tense against it, and you get loads and loads of secondary suffering. And the secondary suffering manifests mentally, emotionally, and physically. Mentally, it's things like catastrophic thinking. So that night, I had these thoughts like, oh, I can't bear it. I'm going to go crazy. It's going to kill me. I can't get through till the morning. Very, very intense. That was all mind-created. I was, in a way, making up all those thoughts as I lay there in the hospital bed. There's no judgment there. That's what we do. But we don't have to do that. That's optional. You can learn how to let go of those kind of catastrophic thinking states. Emotionally, it's fear, anxiety, depression, those kind of things. And physically, it's secondary tension. So if I think back to that experience now, if I sort of wind my mind back 40 years or 30 years in 1985, it was a bit like everything was screaming, everything hurt, incredibly tight breathing. I'll come back to breathing in a moment. My mind was out of control but enormous amounts of secondary physical tension. So it was a bit like my whole body was in agony, where actually it was only my back. I had unpleasant sensations in my back. 
that's actually all the primary sensations were. But because I was resisting, fighting, struggling, I turned that into an experience of torture or it became an experience of torture. And so what we teach people, and this is the primary message really, is how to let go of all those secondary manifestations of suffering and how to rest and to soften towards the primary unpleasant sensations with care, with love, with tenderness, and to breathe with them rather than hold the breath against them. And it's quite a simple message and people get it. People get it very quickly because there's no judgment. I'm not saying, well, silly you for having catastrophic thinking. I'm saying, yes, this is what human beings do. And we have a choice. We don't have to keep doing that. You can train your mind to catch it when it's moving into catastrophic thinking and then to let go of those thoughts, let them be like clouds passing across the sky rather than truths. They're mental events. They're not the truth. And is it difficult to train the mind? I know so many people that haven't meditated before, maybe they're in chronic pain. And you've also said that pain is subjective. And I'm a little curious about that and know how we all experience it differently. What does it take for someone that isn't already buying into meditation to begin that mind training process and to let them know where they might have control both with their emotional and physical pain? My approach is to keep it very, very simple Mm -hmm. and very accessible and very gentle. So on our program, the Breathworks program, that's called Mindfulness for Health in the UK and it's called You Are Not Your Pain in the States. The first week, all you do is a body scan every day. And a body scan is a meditation where you lie down in a comfortable position and you're guided to rest your awareness in all the different parts of the body. And we do it very breath-based at Breathwork. So keeping the breath soft and almost letting the breath massage the body. Now, for someone who's got pain, that invitation is not particularly attractive. <laughs> you know, the invitation to, okay, now you're going to spend the next week coming into your body. The mental uh, response to that might be, well, that's the last place I want to be. I hate my body. My body's painful. Of course, someone's going to think that. That's very understandable. So what we do is we don't say, okay, now lie down on the floor and get into your body. We say, lie down on the floor or the bed. And what do you need to make yourself comfy? Would you like a blanket? Can we tuck you in? If we're in a class, obviously we don't have beds in the class, but we'll get people on the floor comfy. We'll offer them blankets. We'll tuck them in. Is your head at the right height? Would you like another cushion? Would you like an eye pillow to soothe your eyes? So we do lots and lots of caring, lots and lots of tenderness. And then we just very, very gently guide people into the body. And they end up embodied, possibly for the first time for years. They end up befriending the body. And they end up more relaxed very, very often. But they don't quite know how that happens. So it's all a little bit mysterious. And the analogy we use is if you imagine that your body is a house, we don't ask awareness to come in through the front door. It's not like you go to the front door, bang on the door and say, okay, now get into the house. But it's a bit like we open a door at the back of the house and awareness can just sneak in and creep in very, very gently and end up in the house. So we're coming in the back door rather than the front door. So it's not confrontational in any way. It's very gentle, very invitational. And another really nice analogy, actually, is if you go for a walk on a misty day, you start out dry, and at the end of your walk, you might be completely wet all the way through because of the mist. But you don't know at what point you became wet. It's not like halfway through the walk, someone tipped a bucket of water over you. But you just end up saturated with moisture. 
And in the body scan, you end up saturated with awareness in a very similar way. But you don't quite know how it happened or when it happened. And so that's a very safe way for people to begin their awareness training because they do that and they just begin to have a taste of being present, more honest, more authentic, and letting go of the struggle. And then they can take these tools with them. Exactly. Exactly. And then we build on that and we do meditations where you work directly with the mind. We do meditations where you're cultivating kindness to yourselves and other people. Yeah. But it's all done very gently, very systematically, very simply. And people end up at the end of eight weeks with really quite a toolkit mm-hmm. in terms of mind training. And then, of course, you have to keep it up for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't that, that's really the truth. And that's sometimes the hardest thing is for people to realize that this is a practice and that you really do need to keep doing it. That's right. After eight weeks, people will have sometimes profoundly changed. Definitely. And hopefully they will at least have the awareness, I have a mind that can be changed and that can transform my experience of life. They will at the very least have that very confidence building knowledge. But then keeping it up, that's the hard part for most people. Yeah. In your book, Mindfulness for Health, you talk about that you reveal a series of these simple practices that you're talking about today that people can incorporate into their daily life, which I think is so important. And just that invitation to relieve chronic pain and suffering around different illnesses is so enticing. You also talk about the fact that clinical trials have shown that mindfulness meditation can be as effective as prescription painkillers and also enhance the body's natural healing systems. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I'm curious about that, both anecdotally and some of the experience you might have had with research. And also, it seems like this is such a great program Shouldn't every doctor that deals with patients who are in pain know that this is available to them? Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Of course, that requires a culture shift. Right. You know, doctors are used to giving drugs. That's the culture we live in. But of course, there's the opioid crisis now. So mindfulness is becoming much more recognized, which is fantastic. The way the statement about enhancing our natural healing abilities, I'll just say a little bit about that, first of all. There's a very nice model from a psychologist called Paul Gilbert, where he talks about the fact that we have three main emotion regulation systems within us. We've got a threat system, which means that we can avoid harm. And he says that's our dominant system, interestingly, because that's all about survival. So we're very alert to threat so that we can survive. So it's the fight, flight, freeze response. Then there's the achieving system. And from an evolutionary point of view, that's getting out of bed in the morning to go off and get food for your family. So we have to have a system within us that's motivating us to move away from staying in bed and being comfy to going off and getting resources for survival. And then we've got a third system, which is called the contentment and soothing system or the calm and connect system. And what Paul Gilbert says, which I think is very true, is we need all of these systems. Ideally, they're in balance and they can kick in and out as needed. So if you're crossing the road and a car comes towards you, the threat system kicks in very, very quickly and you leap out of the way, out of danger. If you need to do something, the drive system kicks in very quickly. And if you need to rest and calm, the calm and connect system kicks in. However, for many of us in the modern world, the calm and connect system is very understimulated and the threat and achieving systems are overstimulated. For people who live with chronic pain, I think what can happen very, very easily is we're trapped in the threat system and the achieving system. So to give an example, you've got the perception of pain, 
maybe you're not particularly aware of it. So your nervous system is starting to go into a stress response. You've got adrenaline, you've got cortisol, you're getting more and more sort of agitated. Your breathing's getting constricted, maybe sweaty palms, maybe dry mouth. It's uncomfortable. So what do you do? You seek distraction. So you go to Facebook, you go to the television, you go to the fridge. You compulsively seek something to take you away from this experience of discomfort. Again, it's kind of understandable. It's just that it doesn't work as a long-term strategy if it's compulsive. Mm-hmm. Because then you're running away from yourself even more. The pain gets worse. You get more of the threat hormones, the adrenaline and the cortisol, which tend to increase the perception of pain. You get more and more hectic in your distraction. And you just end up in this awful state of aversion, avoidance, denial, and distraction. Yeah, And I think I lived in that state for many, many years. It was just my habitual state. Your adrenal glands are overstimulated. And in terms of the autonomic nervous system, you're in a state of sympathetic hyperarousal. So this is for people with chronic pain. I suspect many of us in the modern world are like that anyway. We're overstimulated, too much stimulation coming in from the outside world, and there's no rest. Going back to people with pain, we can end up living a life where the sympathetic side is massively overstimulated, and the rest part of the system From the nervous system point of view, it will be the parasympathetic nervous system. From the three emotion system regulation model, it's the soothing and contentment system. That is very, very undernourished. So everything that we do in our program is designed to stimulate the parasympathetic and to stimulate the calm and connect system. And interestingly, the hormones of the calm and connect system is oxytocin, which is the cuddle hormone. That's what women naturally get when they're breastfeeding. It's a tremendous feel-good hormone and endorphins. And what are endorphins? They're naturally occurring opiates. They're natural painkillers. So they are our endogenous painkillers. So the more we can get into the karmic connect system and the parasympathetic nervous system, we are going to be reducing adrenaline in the system and adrenaline tends to heighten the perception of pain. And we're going to be boosting endorphins and oxytocin that mute the experience of pain. And we see that all the time with Mm. the people on our program. The more you can drop into that parasympathetic system and the calm and connect system at will, you can train yourself to just drop into it at will. Then you're giving your whole system this boost of natural painkillers. Yeah, it's so incredible to know that all of this is possible and that people that are living with chronic pain and taking so many drugs can deal with these alternatives or have these alternatives available to them. Yeah. And the great thing is we call our program a self-management program. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very, very important because what we're doing is we're giving people skills for life. Right. So you're learning how to have these internal resources to help yourself. So you're not dependent on outside agency, be that a therapist or a doctor or a surgeon or medication. Now I need to really qualify that statement. So we see mindfulness as complementary. So it's complementary to other forms of medicine. So for example, I do take some pain relieving medicine, but I take much, much less than someone with my condition would be expected to take. But if I don't take any, then the nerve pain in my legs is absolutely intolerable and I can't meditate. Mm. So I take enough medication to bring down that pain experience to a manageable level. And then I work with my mind. But I'm doing that from a position of self-power. Right. I don't feel a victim. I don't feel like I've got no skills and I'm completely reliant on the medication. I feel it's my life. I'm choosing how much I take. And as I say, it's way less than I used to take or someone with my condition would be expected to take. 
but I'm doing that from a position of self-empowerment, as it were. And if I needed surgery, I would go to a surgeon. If this situation arose where my back was really deteriorating and I needed surgery, of course I would have the surgery. So we've got all these resources out there that we can call on, but that's very different from being in a powerless state, feeling that I've got no control over my body, no control over my mind, and I'm completely dependent on these external agents. For me, it's like, well, no, I have a lot of control over my body and a lot of control over my mind. And I will use external agents as I need at different times in my journey in this body. Yeah. Well, and having the control goes back to what you were talking about with the secondary areas of discomfort and being able to control some of the ripple effects like fear and anxiety and depression that only make that pain so much worse. Absolutely. And in my experience and observation from the many, many people I've taught, the secondary suffering tends to be the most distressing. Right, right. It's not the actual unpleasant sensations. Yeah, they're painful, they're unpleasant, but that's probably not what's ruining your life. It's Mm -hmm. probably the reactive states we get into mentally, emotionally, and physically that tend to be so damaging in terms of our quality of life. When you talk about the fact that pain is really subjective, is that because of the secondary challenges that you're talking about? Or do we really have like different ways that we each handle our physical pain? Well, I suppose we'll never know. Maybe it's one of those questions. Is it a useful question? (laughs) All people know is they have their own experience and what they call pain is real to them. And certainly I would always believe whatever anyone said to me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this is my pain. This is your pain. This is what you're telling me. How can we help you manage that better? I will never know whether their experience of pain is the same as my experience of pain. We can never, ever know that. But certainly my own experience of pain is definitely moderated by emotional states without a doubt. Yeah. If I'm angry, my pain gets worse. If I'm hungry, my pain gets worse. So it's a physical thing. Right. Pain is a perception. It's not a thing. It's a yeah. perception. And that's so key because you have the ability to train your mind around perception. Exactly. Exactly. This is incredible. Well, how are you doing now and what is your personal daily practice that you do? Okay. So I'm 58 now and my pain is better than it was a decade ago. You know, I'm getting a bit more, a bit less, but less strong as I get older, but generally I'm doing very well. And certainly mentally, I'm doing well. I have a really good life and I'm generally in quite a positive state of mind. I meditate every day. Every morning I have a meditation practice and I also do a body scan every day. Mm. So usually after lunch, I'll do a body scan, which means I lie down and I really, really relax my body. And that helps me get through the rest of the day. And I swim a few times a week and I do my stretches every day. So I've got quite a disciplined self-management program. And if I don't do any of those things, I go downhill very quickly from a physical point of view. Well, it's good that you know that so that you can continue to do all of the things that you're doing. Yes. And of course, it's highly motivating. Right. It is highly motivating. <laughs> well, your story is incredible. And I'm just so grateful that you were able to share your journey with us today. And it's such a gift that you've given back to other people all of this that you've learned through your own hard journey. So thank you so much for that. It's my absolute pleasure. And really, I just want to help people. It's very, very simple. And we've got teachers in over 25 countries now. Oh, fantastic. So it's amazing what's happened. And I feel very moved by the whole situation myself, I must say. It's incredible. Incredible. Well, we'll give people ways to reach you. And again, thank you so much for being with us today. 
That's my absolute pleasure. And thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's been great to chat to you. Thanks so much to Vijamala for sharing her story today. You can check out her books, Living Well with Pain and Illness, and Mindfulness for Health at all major booksellers. Her website is vijamala-birch.com. Vidyamala is V-I-D-Y-A-M-A-L-A-B-U-R-C-H.com. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.